The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're discussing an effect called cavitation. Low pressure causes bubbles of vapor to form in a liquid, which can cause a lot of damage when those bubbles collapse. First up is Paul Brandner to discuss how these bubbles form and why they can be so destructive. Following that, we have Suzanne Cox to discuss her work with crustaceans who have evolved ways of controlling the effect when they strike snail shells. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marion Kilgore. Joining me is Associate Professor Paul Brandner, Research Leader of the Cavitation Research Laboratory at the Australian Maritime College, which is a specialist institute of the University of Tasmania. His research interests are in the physics of bubbly and cavitating flows and how these phenomena manifest in nature and engineered devices. He has developed a range of experimental techniques for studying the initiation and dynamics of cavitation and flows involving the interactions of gas and liquid phases. So thank you very much for speaking to me today because I think cavitation is fascinating. My pleasure. So do we, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So... My first question for you is, how did you get interested in bubbles and cavitation as as an effect in fluids? Well, I studied uh, hydrodynamics at postgraduate level, and um, one of the phenomena that uh, was well well studied um, for some time now um, is cavitation, and it obviously is important for ships because that was one of the major um, events, I think, in the history of, of naval architecture was the manifestation of problems with propulsion due to cavitation that were totally unexpected. Um, and there's a famous uh, a ship that was, I think it was steam-powered, um, invented by a guy named Parsons that had problems with cavitation occurring on the propellers that prevented it from realising what at the time had been the theoretically or predicted um, speeds. And so through a series of quite interesting investigations, they understood that cavitation was the problem and could start working towards solutions to fix it. So was cavitation something that scientists at that time were aware of as an effect and they just didn't expect it on ship propellers or was this a totally new idea? Well, there was some work done on some form of of what cavitation was, but I, I don't think... Yes, it wasn't generally known as a phenomenon that, uh, particularly not with, engi- with, with engineering devices anyway. Lord Raleigh did study cavitation, um, but I have to just check on the dates for that. I must say I can't no. give you those off the top of my head, but he did some work on, on the fundamentals of cavitation as well. He did a work on a lot of things, of course, <laughs> but one of them was on, on bubbles. But that's more that more relates to the initiation or inception of cavitation. We can talk more about that, of course. Yeah, let's maybe start with some basics. So we've already mentioned bubbles, but what is cavitation and, and what are common situations where it occurs? Yeah, we should start from the beginning. So cavitation, the strict definition, is the change of phase that occurs between liquid and uh, vapor phases due to the reduction of pressure. So it's very similar to boiling. I mean, both both across the liquid vapour saturation, saturated, saturation line, if you like, but one's due to boilings, due to the addition of heat, whereas with cavitation, it's due to reduction of pressure. So the interesting thing there is, I mean, boiling obviously takes place at um, constant pressure and cavitation takes um, place at roughly constant, fairly well, a, a constant temperature. So we can think of it in terms of, it's very similar in that sense to boiling. There's the same effects occurring, change of phase, liquid to vapour, 
it's just that cavitation is normally not seen I often say to people it's the great unseen phenomenon that's it's all around us really but it occurs in many situations in nature and in engineered devices but we don't see it because it's quite a transient very high frequency phenomenon um, although it is it can be ever present of course on things like ship propellers people will be aware of that because it's very very noisy so when it occurs it's fairly obvious be it on large ships or small small boats when we're talking about these bubbles, so these are most, in the case of water, these would mostly be water vapor. Are there other gases in these bubbles as well? Yeah, well, we should, we should talk about what we, so we've just mentioned what it is. So how, how does it manifest? Well, that's the thing we often discuss is, or we investigate is, is we use the term inception, but it's the initiation. And this is an interesting thing. When you would watch a pot boil, you'll notice that, uh, the heat's usually added through the walls of a container, so the bubbles will form, mm-hmm. and usually they form from probably the, the, the nucleation process, we call it, um, heterogeneous, being um, being discrete, um, occurs from tiny crevices or locations on the wall of the vessel that um, promote the formation of those bubbles. Often they're tiny, they can be tiny crevices with, with trapped gas. So the similar thing can occur with cavitation, but what doesn't normally occur, or what is one of the the main ways nucleation occurs with with cavitation is through tiny bubbles because tiny bubbles have a critical pressure below which their equilibrium is unstable and if, if that pressure is attained then they can go unstable and suddenly grow explosively and that's that that is the initiation typically of of many of cavitation in many hydrodynamic situations there are other types of cavitation um, the the one we study in our lab is what we term hydrodynamic but there are other fields which we can come to later. Um, for now, we should stick with the hydrodynamic cavitation. So it's very important to, when we study uh, hydrodynamic cavitation, be able to model that uh, that inception process. So we actually we've built a, a large water tunnel where we can artificially seed the flow with these tiny bubbles. And so we've spent a lot of time working out how to make tiny bubbles in a controlled way um, and be able to put them in a flow homogeneously to to model these practical flows. Just going back to the sort of similarity to something like a, a, a kettle where we're boiling water. Um, so nucleation sites would be when the bubbles start forming at the heating element on a kettle, sometimes you'll see like strings of bubbles going up from the same spot. So that would be like a flaw that's uh, well, that's well. You did mention about the other gases, um, so perhaps we should just say something about that. Yeah, it's the, this phenomenon, the nucleation, particularly from the surface, is very similar to the phenomenon you see with glasses of um, oh, any any liquid that's supersaturated with dissolved gas, a, a beer, champagne, soft drink, uh, all those. Uh, often you'll see streams of bubbles uh, from a point. So that's that's a process of diffusion, gaseous diffusion. So m- molecules of the gas are diffusing from the liquid phase into that crevice. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the gas bubble expands, breaks off, and the whole thing continues in a periodic or cyclic manner. So that's 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 quite similar to surface nucleation. The only thing is the bubble's breaking off there due to the diffusion. But if the pressure's reduced, then obviously that bubble, that trapped gas, will also nucleate just similar, similarly with the bubble. And so we never really have, when we say cavitation, we have these formation of these cavities in liquid flows or liquid volumes. We're not talking ever really strictly pure vapour. 
because there's invariably dissolved gas present that diffuses into those cavities. And so there's a there's a mixture um, of so there's two gases in there exerting partial pressures, uh, or, or there's the gas and the vapor. Um, and often we can we often study flows too where there's a high proportion of dissolved gas or even 100% sorry of incondensable gas as opposed to pure vapor. We talk about artificial cavitation where we make cavities that look like the same ones that would form in natural cavitation, but we do it by adding gas to artificially create cavitation. We call, that's what we call that. They're ventilated cavities, but very similar physics, I might say. Sticking a bit, I guess, with with introducing people to cavitation, what are some of the consequences when we have, say, ship propellers that cause cavitation that we didn't expect? Well, I should just mention, too, that when I say to people, it, it occurs everywhere. Um, just to give some examples, it's, it's sort of, it, it occurs in nature. It occurs, for example, in trees um, because trees lift water more than 10 metres if they're more than 10 metres high. Through evaporation from the leaves, trees have to draw water up so the, the liquid in the tree can be in a state of what we call tension. In other words, its state of pressure is below absolute zero and that means it's in a metastable state. And so there's the potential for cavitation. And this has been studied. Uh, it's, very, it's quite fascinating. And bubbles of vapour can form in those, in, in, in the vessels that carry the water. In oh, fact, okay. I believe, I believe, in fact, those events create quite high frequency sound events, um, acoustic events that can be monitored in some way to check the health of trees. Because obviously their ability to be able to lift that water up into the canopy is vital for the tree to live. So there's a, there's some crustaceans that make cavitation. It's one called the pistol shrimp and another called the mantis shrimp. We don't fully understand why that's necessarily the case, but they certainly use it to capture prey. And, and it occurs in many engineering systems, um, fuel injection systems in cars and trucks, ships. In fact, cavitation there has some uh, positive effects because it, it, it enhances the mixing process that uh, is required to atomize fuels for improved combustion. But in the, in the, in the naval space, uh, naval architecture or ships, naval hydrodynamics, um, yeah, we, we spend a lot of time looking at cavitation on propellers because um, it's a major problem for all ships, really, be they civilian, uh, naval, uh, research vessels, that sort of thing. So in, in the case of propellers, which is very similar to hydroelectric machinery or other pumps, that sort of thing, cavitation forms, the bubbles form, they grow into large volume cavities. They they can collapse very violently because the, the pressure in those cavities is, you know, very close to, to absolute zero. Um so vapor vapor pressure for water's of the order of a few kilopascals. So it's close to zero. Um and when those cavities condense, as we say, and collapse, you can get uh, a whole range of phenomena occur. Little bubbles can also, when the when the cavities collapse, it may not be a large volume. It can break into small volumes. They they collapse at discrete locations. Bubbles, when they collapse near surfaces, form what we call reentrant jets. These are small liquid jets that are associated with very high pressures and velocities, um, and shock waves form. In fact, the mechanism it's, it's that singular that it causes erosion of metals. It's a long-term thing, but once it occurs, the metal loss can be significant enough that ultimately you have failure of the device. For example, like a propeller blade can break due to erosion of metal from cavitation. So the so the pressure inside of these cavitation bubbles when they form 
is very close to to a vacuum. It's quite it's very low pressure. That's right. Yes. Mm. So then um, you mentioned they start very small. Um, how big do they get or can they get or does it yes. vary wildly? There's been a lot of um, research into um, these microbubbles. And in fact, various means have been invented to measure them in practical volumes in rivers, lakes in, and in the ocean. And it turns out the ocean's full of, of microbubbles um, and it depends on a range of factors. One of them, for example, is the sea state. So that creates mixing. And in fact, um, one of the, that's one of those mechanisms that's interesting from the point of view of the ability of oceans to absorb gases from the atmosphere. Um, for example, so it's, interest for, it's of interest for climate change. But anyway, bubbles, bubbles are made by the mixing events that occur on the surface of the ocean. And those bubbles can be very long-lived if they're very small and they can get transported by ocean currents, etc. So typically, the sorts of numbers we're talking about are of the order of some bubbles between, say, 0.1 to maybe one bubble per cubic centimetre or perhaps lower. And in the laboratory, we typically model, we have between point, we go to as low as 0.01, or we can have no bubbles as well, of course, but from say 0.01 to maybe 10 bubbles per cubic centimetre, to give you an example of the sorts of concentrations we're talking about. And the sizes are between typically 10 to 100 microns, say. So that's a tenth or ten one or one hundredth of a millimetre mm-hmm. to a tenth of a millimetre. So this is before they encounter a low-pressure area that causes them to grow? That's it. Yeah, and in fact, you can have although the critical pressure for all bubbles, well, below sort of the 100, you know, less than a, much less than a millimetre, so the order of the disorder of 10 to 100 microns, although, we, you know, they go down to one micron too, it's, um, although we can't always see them, so it's difficult to, to actually establish that they are bubbles. Um, but small bubbles, the, if you do the, uh, the numbers on it, their critical pressure is actually negative, which means okay. a lot of the time, so if you don't have any nuclei or tiny bubbles present, then pressure reduction can go below absolute zero. So the liquid's actually carrying tens- tension. So, And this is where liquids are different to gases, of course, because liquids can sustain a tensile stress, unlike gases where the molecules are further apart. What happens is the liquid actually will be in this so-called metastable state. So it's actually pressures that are negative and hence below vapour pressure, but all we need is one um, nucleation site to be available and obviously that will trigger the, the initiation of the phase change. So in an engineering context, we have something like a ship propeller, which is moving fairly quickly through the water and forms low pressure cavities and then we get bubbles. Low pressure regions. Regions, that, okay. That where the liquid, where the, the, the pressure can become negative. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so we, negative mm, meaning less than atmospheric pressure. Less, less than absolute zero. So, okay. below vacuum. Yeah. So, it's, you, you've got to think of it in terms of a little bit like solid mechanics now, rather than uh, fluid mechanics, in the sense that is that the water is actually carrying a tensile stress. So that's a negative pressure. <laughs> okay. If, if you follow me, yeah. So you're below. You're below. You. So the vapor pressure for water is a bit, is a set of normal temperatures around about two or three kilopascals. And obviously, we can get to zero, which is a vacuum. But then, so beyond that, we're into tensile or negative tensile stresses or negative pressures. 
their critical pressures are negative. So that means that, yeah, there are regions in a liquid um, that's being accelerated, for example, around a ship's propeller or in a pump where the pressure may well be below vacuum, below absolute zero. Mm. And it's only until that site, that region, is it, has a, there's a, a nuclei available that gets triggered in that low pressure. And then we've got to model the dynamics um, potentially of that bubble too. There's a famous uh, equation that's often used to model that. That is, It only applies to spherical bubbles, but it's quite famous called the Rayleigh Placid equation that we can use to model the time history of a bubble's response to a varying pressure field. So, okay, so that's how the bubbles get started and form. Um, and then what typically happens to these bubbles? Oh, well, then there's, there's a quite, then there can be a, a host of complex macroscopic, um, scale phenomenon occur. And, uh, that's, then we're moving into, you know, classical fluid mechanics, but multi-phase, obviously. Um, and so the bubbles can remain as discrete entities and grow and collapse, or they can coalesce into large volumes. As I said, and then because it's a larger scale, um, and it's interacting with the liquid flow around it, this, it often involves turbulence. Turbulence plays a crucial role in its interaction with, um, um, macroscopic or large-scale cavitation phenomena. But as we've discussed, when the vapour cavities move to higher pressure regions downstream of the initial region where, where they grow or occur, the condensation or collapse process is quite complicated. So suddenly that, that vapour volume will condense back to liquid and often what occurs too is that because it is such a low pressure, it's at, it's at vapor pressure, as I mentioned earlier, um, dissolved gas will diffuse into that, those cavities despite the short time scales. Um, and usually after condensation, there's often, there's always a mist of fine bubbles of incondensable gas left behind. And so we're often studying that as well. That's of interest for a range of reasons. As I mentioned before, we can get all sorts of phenomena, reentrant jets forming, um, shock waves, all these phenomena contribute to the potential for erosion, mechanical erosion of surfaces. But just the whole, the, 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 all the phenomena really contribute to a loss of thrust, for example, on ships' propellers, um, very unsteady flows, and therefore there's a potential for vibration and fatigue, and very violent. The, the, the collapse in general is very, very violent, the condensation process. So large forces, unsteady forces, uh, noise, obviously. It's very noisy. Um, so, and, and ultimately the metal erosion. So sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, so despite the fact that these bubbles are, you know, not, not that big, like they're fairly, you know, you can see them with the naked eye, but they're small bubbles. But just the forces involved when they collapse means that they can do a lot of damage. Yeah. No, like big, in other words, yeah, I often say to people to study large scale things, we need to study small scale things like a lot of these nonlinear dynamical phenomenon. Um, they often start with very small things and small changes have a large effect later. So it turns out that the range of bubble sizes and how many there are you know, affect the evolution of the macroscopic phenomenon in a complicated way. Um, it's one of the things we're studying you know, in the, in the cavitation lab at AMC. So then, um, so the, when the bubbles collapse, do they, well, so when the liquid condenses and the bubble starts to collapse, does that happen from the center of the bubble or does it happen from the outside of the bubble? Or, or does that vary depending on the conditions it encountered? Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's complicated again. Um, <laughs> well, that, that's right. I mean, the bubble condensation, if it was an isolated spherical bubble, well, it would obviously be fairly symmetric. But given that it's interacting with the surrounding flow and other bubbles around it, um, you get very complicated interactions between all the bubbles, like most phenomena in fluids. Sort of all particles sort of affect all other particles. And when they, when they collapse or condense near surfaces, it's highly asymmetric. And that's when these liquid jets form. 
the bubble sort of turns into into a toroidal shape um, and the jets actually depending on what they're adjacent to whether it be a rigid surface or a liquid surface and there's been some very interesting research done on this in um, Switzerland at EPFL on um, the formation of these jets and the behaviour of those bubbles um, near liquid surfaces or near solid surfaces. Um, so these very, are, very, very, sorry, go ahead. So, so these are like really tiny, really high velocity little jets of water that are coming. They out can, of these. they can be. The bubbles can be quite large, um, or they can be quite small too. But in any case, the typically the the speeds that these things occur at are very high. Yes, and in fact, well, I should say that. In the, there's an entirely new field, sonochemistry it's called, um, sonofluidics, um, that's studying the behaviour of isolated bubbles where things can get very small and when the bubbles collapse it becomes very singular. You get temperatures in the bubble forming of the order of 10,000 Kelvin. Um, there's ionisation of gases and in fact, so actually these bubble events are that singular that they actually emit light. The phenomenon is called sonoluminescence and um, there's a whole, as I said, a whole new field of science uh, that's been developed through this phenomenon and it's quite amazing and it has applications <laughs> in medic- medical science and a whole range of other areas and a whole new field of chemistry as well. But anyway, so the point is it's very, very high frequency and often to study these phenomena we need to look at high-speed imaging of the order of anything from 10,000 frames per second up to millions of frames per second. So the, the water tunnel that you have uh, at, at the university to, to study cavitation, uh, so what is what is this tunnel? Is it like a wind tunnel but filled with water? Pretty much, yes. It is a. We can say that the water tunnel is analogous to a wind tunnel for aeronautical research. It's it's a little different in that it needs to be built um, very obviously because it's got to hold water. It's got to be built with a lot more structural strength, and we have to pressurise it or evacuate it. So the pressure range of our tunnel is from pretty much a vacuum all the way up to four atmospheres. Mm-hmm. So zero. We often say four kPa, which is the pressure we can achieve with a conventional vacuum pump up to four hundred kPa. So that's point. Mm-hmm. 4% of an atmosphere to four atmospheres. And so that creates large forces. In fact, our tunnel, it's got the typical test area where it's not that big. It's only uh, 600 millimetres by 600 millimetres cross-section. Okay. But to achieve that, we've got something that's of the order of 30 metres long by sort of 10 metres high because we need a lot of extra areas in the circuit where we can remove the bubbles and the gas and so forth. So we actually inject the bubbles, make them, inject them, mix them to disperse them homogeneously, and then we remove them in downstream uh, tanks around the circuit. And so we do that in several ways. We do it by um, coalescing those bubbles into larger ones so they rise under gravity or by in the lower part of the circuit that the water spends a long time there, so extended residence, and that enables the bubbles to dissolve the very small ones, less than 100 microns. So we've gone to a lot of effort to build that. This Our tunnel took... um, 10 years to design and to, and to build and cost of the order of about $10 million. So how do you move water through the tunnel? Oh, we have a big pump, yeah, that's located in the in the bottom of the circuit where the pressure's high, so we don't have cavitation on the pump. That was um, going to be my next question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, people often say, why is it vertical? And, and I say that's so we can have a, the, the, the lower limb of the tunnel is, is under high pressure or higher mm-hmm. pressure. It never gets to vacuum um, or low pressures, and that's where practically you would put the pump to ensure that there's no cavitation. We don't want the pump cavitating, and as I mentioned earlier, cavitation itself makes more bubbles. And this is one of the reasons um, we've developed our tunnel was we actually built one much earlier than that years ago, and the first thing I saw there was you have cavitation. It condenses, but it leaves behind this population of 
of uh, little bubbles and they go around the circuit and they can yeah. then nucle- nucleate the model. So, so what happens is you can get a coupling between the model and the circuit and they interact. So it's really to study cavitation properly, we need to eliminate that coupling between the, the cavitating test model and, uh, the cir- and the circuit. Why is it important to do this physical testing of, of the models? Do we have computer simulations that can come up with similar results? Good question. Um, the advances um, in, in computational fluid dynamics are quite extraordinary, really. I've, I've watched them occur over the last dec- over the preceding decades. It's amazing with the growth in computer power how much we can predict now. But these flows remain difficult to predict and we don't have the computer power or even fully understand the physics. So they're, they're the issues. That's why we do experimentation to gain insights into the physics from which we can develop and, um, and validate computer simulations, but also uh, to, as I said, to, so we need data to develop those models, but also we need to understand the physics. So, And at this stage, a lot of the flows, even if we do understand some of them, we, we haven't always got the computer power to make those predictions in realistic time frames. Once you have an idea where the cavitation is likely to occur with, a, with an item, Um, Is there much that you can do about it or do you need to sort of try again and and test again or are there just certain design tweaks that are well understood that you can implement? With propellers, for example, the first, obviously the the obvious thing is being able to adapt the shape to whatever. Um, So that's a complicated problem I often say to students that the reason why propellers are so difficult is there's so many parameters that we need just to to describe the geometry. Um, And obviously, so so it's a non-trivial engineering problem to uh, design a propeller. And that's why there's a, a, a multitude of if you look at propellers, depending on what their application is, there's this wonderful diversity of shape and and, and uh, form, if you like. And obviously, they're they're all designed often individually for a particular ship. So there's that problem. And as I said, there's still testing done for propellers in in physical testing, um, but less of it for defence applications. For example, there would certainly be possibly um, testing it again to ensure cavitation as 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 required is actually occurring as, as it's expected. Can if you have something like a uh, a pump impeller, pumps aren't. I mean, ships are usually in water, but pumps uh, often pump other fluids. Um, can you translate an object's behavior with cavitation that you test in water into to another fluid, or is that the sort of situation where it's complex enough that the best way is just to test it in the second fluid? No, no, that's good. That's a good question. Um, a lot of the time, for most cavitation problems, as we would we term it, hydrodynamic cavitation, um, we can generally scale the phenomenon to other fluids, knowing the fluid properties. Um, but there are extreme. There are cases, for example, cryogenic fluids, where it's not quite that simple. There's um, some complicated thermodynamics involved. It's not quite the same because you can be operating well in in, in regions where Suddenly, um, there are other issues. Um, there's heat transfer involved, and um, that's typically in rocket fuel pumps, for example. So, if you're building um, for uh, for space travel, that sort of thing. Um, I, ca- I can't comment. I'm not an expert in that field, but I can say that that's one area where we the fluids need to be the very much. We need to have the correct properties. But typically, normally, no. Like many fluid fluid flow problems, you can scale those using. For example, we can compare air and liquid flows, gas and liquid flows, in the absence of cavitation, provided certain scaling parameters are maintained 
if we're studying turbulence, we use the number called the Reynolds number. As long as those Reynolds numbers are identical, then the flow geometry will be the same. And there's no effects, for example, if the compressibility is not an issue or there's no cavitation, then we can we can compare a gas and a liquid flow provided the scaling parameters that reflect the phenomena of interest are identical. Do the cavitation bubbles, when they form around fuel pumps for rocket fuel, um, do they do they collapse differently than water? Or I guess how do how do things like surface tension and viscosity affect how the bubbles behave when they collapse? Well, I can certainly talk a little bit about that's some of the things we study. Is that when these bubbles, when the, when the bubbles are activated and they form larger bubbles and they coalesce into large-scale um, cavity volumes? Yeah, there, there is a very complicated interaction with the ex, with the surrounding liquid flow, and it can involve turbulence. Um, and in fact, some cavities that uh, when you have the the liquid on the body ahead of the cavity, there's a what we call a boundary layer. That's the region adjacent to the surface where there's a lot of shearing. And typically for what we call sheet cavities to form, they're sort of stable, large scale, or they can be unstable. But, um, they're, they're large, large volumes of, of, of a cavity that's typically connected, not discrete. Um, they often form from the separation of laminar flows. And the laminar flow over the top of that cavity will become, un- can become unstable and then transition to turbulence. And that's what actually breaks the cavity up. So as I mentioned earlier, there's a complication between um, turbulence in the liquid phase and the cavity surface. And that's why often cavitation is often non-trivial because there's all these, this uh, myriad of interactions and phenomenon that can occur between the liquid and, and vapor phases because it's forming a free surface. Right. Okay. So so when it's when it's uh, laminar and smooth and fairly closely in t- well tied into the to the surface that's causing the cavitation, everything's okay. And then as soon as things get turbulent and you get a whole bunch of little surface areas, then yes, that's right. Problems occur. For example, in the case I just mentioned, the the turbulence in some situations, not all of them. Um, well, first of all, the laminar flow needs to be, become unstable, and we often talk about um, situations where turbulence, um, there's the possibility or the flow susceptible to the formulation of turbulence via some disturbance. Um, and this is one of the things um, about in fluid mechanics is understanding what is the process of turbulence formation. Uh, that's what that's one of, you know one of the it remains a an ongoing problem. Turbulence is still not fully understood, um, and certainly as it interacts with cavities, it's not understood either. Um, so if the flow does become unstable and begin to transition into so waves usually form, and those waves amplify, and ultimately if they amplify enough that the inertia from the turbulence can overcome the surface tension on the on the cavity surface, then we'll get the cavity will break up into small scale structures, um, vortices and bubbles and so forth. If that answers the question. <laughs> so, so you can see there's, then, there's a balance there between inertia and surface tension. And this is this is often right. what we study in fluid mechanics is what what are the forces acting and how can we uh, how, what are the how, the balance of these forces? They often control the type of phenomena we're looking at. So then going back to the supercavitation we were talking about earlier, that's a situation where the smooth laminar flow uh, carries on for quite a bit That's right. Further. That's true. You you would want um, you don't want the turbulence to overcome the surface tension there. And typically with most most supercavities that's the case. They've got um, effectively laminar flow or low t- at least the turbulence is low enough that it doesn't break up the surface. That's okay. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. 
No, well, um, sometimes well, cavities won't form because the turbulence actually washes the cavity away. Um, so it just depends on the type of. Again, it depends on how it's nucleated. I mean, if there's, if there's enough bubbles there, they'll they'll be it'll, it'll form in, inevitably. But uh, turbulence does play a role, absolutely. What sort of questions are you and your lab uh, working on right now that you're really interested in? Well, the main because because of our tunnel, as I said, it's quite a unique facility. Um, we've spent a long time uh, working out. So we do, we do a lot of small-scale experiments, and interestingly enough, the, the devices we use to make bubbles often make cavitation on a very small scale. So we have very small-scale flows, typically less than a millimetre, sometimes down to tens of microns, um, where we create these tiny flows at low pressure, and we make cavitation and turbulence. And the turbulence at very, which breaks up the cavitation is at a very small scale, and it's the scale of that turbulence that controls the scale of the bubbles that are generated. And so we do a lot of work with very small setups with microscopes, and then we then we then we engineer those devices to put them in the big tunnel to make the little tiny bubbles to uh, to then seed the. If you understand, yeah, to seed the um, so, S flow, yeah. So you're 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 making the tiny little cavitation devices so that you can do big cavitation. Big cavitation devices. That's exactly right, and. And uh, we do we do treat a little bit. Um, what we do often use is is water that's been supersaturated. Um, in fact, there's 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 new devices being developed all the time, and some people are doing it without supersaturating the water. But so what we do is we create we deliberately add gas, and so when the cavitation occurs, there's a large um, gas diffusion. Which I was discussing earlier with the glass of mm-hmm. champagne or beer. Um, so that actually enhances the bubble formation process, um, and we get a lot more bubbles. So that's that's one way. But it does it, that does take some effort to supersaturate that water. But we've got a system now that does it, so it's it's um, it's handy for us to use that phenomenon as well. So we're actually cavitating supersaturated water, and as I said, what controls the um, the bubble size is often the turbulent scales. Thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. You can learn more about Paul Brandner and links to information about his research on cavitation at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. We'll be right back after this with a discussion of how some shrimp put cavitation bubbles to work for them. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm your host, Marianne Kilgore. With me is Suzanne Cox. She's currently a postdoctoral researcher in kinesthesiology at Penn State University with a PhD in organismic and evolutionary biology and has done research on the causes of cavitation when mantis shrimp strike prey. Along the way to her current role, she has also been raising two girls, started a business making and designing furniture, and obtained degrees in philosophy, sculpture, and mechanical engineering. So thanks for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me. So, how did you end up on a research team looking at mantis shrimp? It's not something I would normally associate <laughs> with mechanical engineering. Oh, actually, actually, there was a lot. Um, Sheila went to the mechanical engineering department looking for a collaborator in particular. Um, so, I'd been working on my um, master's degree in mechanical engineering, and um, Sheila Patak had recently been looking for someone to build 
a mechanical model in order to be able to test some of these questions that she had been looking into about how um, how and when cavitation formed. And she had met somebody else who was working um, on fast starting fish and was they were talking about how fast things can go. And, and he was all excited that he had something that could accelerate. I think it was at 10 to the second or something meters per second squared. And she's like, well, my system I'm looking at goes at 10 to the fourth. And anyhow, so they began a conversation and, um, and then I got pulled in as somebody who was capable of doing these things. I knew nothing about mantis shrimp when I started. What are mantis shrimp and why are their movements so interesting? Okay, there we go. Okay, so I was on the right track. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so like I said, mantis shrimp um, are small crustaceans that live in the ocean. They're scattered throughout um, throughout the oceans. And like I said, they range in size from about the size of a cigar down to about one or two inches long. And they break open snail shells um, with by striking them with a hammer-like appendage. And it's actually really hard to break open a snail shell. Um, they're They're well... Um, defended, they've evolved over over millennia to basically have great defenses to not be broken even easily. And the mantis shrimp have co-evolved um, this basically a hammer-like a- approach that they they hammer at the shell over and over again, but they're really tiny in relation to the snail shells. So how they usually accomplish this is hitting it really fast. So they have to move very, very quickly in water to deliver these peak impulses that over hundreds of strikes eventually break open the snail shells and they can eat it, eat things that many other animals can't. So, so they have, uh, I, I assume, one particular claw that moves really quickly. Two, actually. Oh, but they yeah. both do? Yep, there's got one on either side. Oh, okay. So do they, when they're trying to break open a snail shell, do they, like, alternate, like, boxing? Yeah, or? they do. They do, actually. Um, and they can actually deliver four force peaks in a brief, very brief, under milliseconds period of time by striking with one one appendage. It gets a force peak, and then the cavitation bubble that forms—we we can talk about what that is—collapses, yeah, we'll forms another ca- another force peak, and then the second appendage, and then a second cavitation bubble. So yes, they use both appendages. Okay, so do they live in groups or are they fairly solitary? They live in their own burrows, often near other mantis shrimp, but they're not kind of cohabitating. I would say they each have their own, and they're very territorial. Okay. And actually use their appendages um, to break open snail shells, but they also use it to smash rocks and then use those rocks to build their burrows. So they kind of have these little um, houses that they build for themselves, oh. often breaking pieces of coral off and um, shaping it that way. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, are there other types of crustaceans that have uh, similar hunting techniques with the sort of hammering type claws? There aren't too many, actually. I'm trying to think of any others off the top of my head. There are several different um, species of mantis shrimp that do this, and not all species of mantis shrimp do it. There are other types that um, actually are more spearers, and they have a similar appendage, but they've evolved it to um, kind of open up and snatch fish rather than break open shells. I'm trying to think if there's any others I can think of. Not that I know of. There might be, but none that I know of. Fair enough. So the uh, so when the when the mantis shrimp strikes the snail shell and yeah. and uh, 
causes a force peak on the surface of the shell. And then there's a cavitation bubble afterwards. So what is causing that vapor bubble to form? Good question. Um, so cavitation, I don't know if we probably good to give a little bit of background on what cavitation is. Cavit- yeah. Cav- yeah. Cavitation is a phase change from a liquid to a gas. It's like akin to boiling, but um, boiling happens when you increase the temperature. Cavitation happens when you decrease the pressure. So what when you happens when you strike something in water is that you get a pressure wave, a pressure pulse that goes out. And basically in the low in the trough of that pressure pulse, you end up with like a low pressure behind the high pressure. Um, and in that low pressure area, the pressures get low enough that the molecular bonds between the water actually break apart and um, they're able to change phase down from a liquid to a gas forming a cavitation bubble. Okay. So this bubble forms and then collapses. Very rapidly. So how much damage can these bubbles do to the snail shell? It's an excellent question. That's one of the things we've been trying to to test. We know that um, cavitation is one of the major causes of erosion on boat propellers. Mm -hmm. So cavitation is forceful enough to be able to erode holes in metal over a very brief period of time. Um, We've been trying to, the assumption is that cavitation is actually useful for the mantis shrimp, but trying to actually do experiments to prove that we've been working on that for a long time and it's very (laughs) surprisingly difficult um, to get quantifiable evidence that yes, it's with and without it, um, there's a difference. I actually spent months trying to get that data and it's really difficult, um, surprisingly, to have it not cavitate. So to to cavitate sort of at the right point or to get it to just it's it it cavitates really easily so in order to be able to do the experiment you have an i like ideally you'd like to have a situation where you hit things with the same force Mm -hmm. and in one case the environmental conditions are such that it doesn't cavitate when you do that and the other one um it does and then you could compare the damage right that would be kind of the ideal situation um but it's it's really difficult to get it to not cavitate. It's actually really, really easy to cavitate at these speeds and at these forces. Um, so I was trying to do an experiment like that, and cavitation is dependent on a lot of things, including water temperature and salinity and um, pressure. And and so we I had a situation where I had ice cold water, which was to reduce the cavitation, and then warm water, and I was trying to break snails, and it was a um, it was a painful experiment with very inconclusive results, unfortunately. So uh, the group that you were working with researching mantis shrimp, uh, and you mentioned that you had been recruited for the purposes of building a, a physical model. Um, mm-hmm. How do you go about building a robot that can move a limb that quickly through water? Because moving something through air is a lot easier than moving something through water. That's very true. Yeah, the drag forces that we calculated were 800 times greater in water than in air. Um, 
Yeah, a lot of the, when Sheila first started looking to try to find someone to do this project, most of the engineers told her she was crazy. Like, it just wasn't possible. They're like, that's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess you, you approach someone who doesn't, who <laughs> is willing to take on the impossible. Um, and we started with lots of different techniques. And um, it's interesting that the approach that we ended up finding successful turned out to kind of mirror um, the way the mantis shrimp do it. So when you think about what would be challenging about something like that, it's not just creating the speeds underwater. It's doing it in something that you that is um, repeatable, mm-hmm. right? That's safe. Like the forces are really high. So a lot of times to generate these forces, um, we as humans tend to use combustion. Right. Right. But that's hard underwater and, you know, not so safe in a lab environment. <laughs> um, and you want something that's controllable. That you can like basically control the velocity that is going at, the acceleration that happens. And like I said, all do this underwater. So a lot of kind of our standard approaches that um, we use in order to make things go really fast where we use explosions or, or motors, motors don't work so well underwater, mm-hmm. um, we're kind of... Uh, not, not, they were off limits. And so we ended up using, um, like I said, a similar technique to what the mantis shrimp do in that we used um, power amplification. So basically stored energy in the deflection of um, elastic element, like a, a bending of a beam. Mantis shrimp use the bending of their exoskeleton in order to store energy up very slowly um, and then release it with the flick of a latch. And then it can move much faster than that than anything that their muscles can generate um, and much faster than, say, we can do with motors at that scale. So we did a similar approach. And that was the only way I was able to, to get it to work. So uh, so when the mantis shrimp is, I guess, loading their claw, <laughs> the, so the muscles are moving sort of slowly and steadily and storing energy in their actual, mm-hmm. like in their exoskeleton, they deform yeah. their exoskeleton to store the energy. They do. Yep, they bend it. It's it's a slightly complicated shape, but it's semi cylindrical, and they it basically deforms and bends. Yeah, it's hard to. There's a good paper on it. They <laughs> <laughs> go through and show all the stresses involved. Um, but yeah, so they store it up in the deformation of that. And what's, what's I mean, the advantage of a system like that is um, it doesn't wear out very quickly, right? right? You don't have any major pressure points that are become going to be particularly weakly weak. And luckily with a system like an exoskeleton, weak points, they can, you know, slowly evolve to make them stronger. So over, over millennia, you have the shape that works, works really well um, for that, for that system. And um, yeah, it's very smooth. It's, it's a very, very tightly integrated system, how exactly it bends and where the pieces go so that the appendage is um, pushed in just the right way and doesn't get off kilter. Because the whole thing, if you if you vibrate the system at all, if like there is any like little bumps or tweaks in it in any way, you'd cavitate like crazy too. So you have to have something that is very smooth in addition to being able to go um, as fast as the mantis shrimp too. So how much energy are we talking about with these strikes? Like if, if <laughs> this is the best analogy I can think of, if a shrimp were human sized, are we talking like incredible <laughs> Hulk type 
destruction here? Or I did that calculation at one point? And I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. I did it on, or you can think of it in terms of um, body masses and like the 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 strike like force versus body mass. Give me just a second. Let me see if I can find it. Um, oh, I think it was a boxer does like four times their body mass when they strike and mantis shrimp, it's on the order of thousands of times their body mass. Okay. So. They, but they're really tiny. But they're really <laughs> tiny. Right. So they're going after snails, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> but a snail that's often close to them. So in comparison to us, I mean, the snail could be a quarter or half of their body length. Right. So try to imagine hammering, say, with a part, any part of your body, <laughs> open a snail shell that was three feet or two feet in diameter. Yeah. That's... In water. Yeah. It's it's really amazing when you think about it. It's, it kind of blows me away on a regular basis. So, and and you mentioned this sort of briefly earlier, but what sort of speeds were you trying to get to with your uh, model, with your robot model of the mantis shrimp? So the, the we are trying to mimic and get as close as possible to what we've measured in, in mantis shrimp. And they go from zero to 60 miles an hour in milliseconds. It's just sort of mind-boggling. It really is. It really is. Um, Especially given they're that tiny, um, that they can get up to that speed. And this is a rotational motion, so they're rotating. So that's at the tip of their appendage, Mm -hmm. um, how fast that tip is moving. So it's around, yeah, 30 meters per second. And you'd mentioned that the results of this entire study were a bit inconclusive. But when uh, when you were testing your robot, how was the cavitation that you were seeing with the robot different than what the man? to shrimp achieve? Yeah, very good question. We were, it's, when we started this project, like I said, we expected to, like, the question was, wow, cavitation is like such a powerful force and these mantis shrimp seem to be doing this. How could they manage to do this? And then as we were studying it, we realized that the, it's actually incredibly easy to generate cavitation moving this fast in water. Generally, if you move anything this fast in water, it will cavitate. And so the, the question um, eventually switched and where it started like, was, wow, how do they generate cavitation? Eventually, it became, how how do we not generate cavitation? Because our, the mantis shrimp only cavitate um, when after they strike um, the snail. So basically, they hit it, they bounce back, a cavitation bubble forms on the surface of the snail shell that then collapses and exerts another pressure wave on the snail shell. And the um, mechanical model, NinjaBot, when it moved, I could just, I'm just rotating anything through the water way before it even hits anything, cavitations all over my appendage um, that I was rotating at speeds much lower than what we saw um, on the mantis shrimp. So it would happen well before it even struck anything. So that got us questioning like, okay, it's not so much how do they generate it, but how do they control it? How is it that they form cavitation when it could be useful, but they're avoiding cavitation in some way when it would only damage their own snail shells? Because, I mean, they are just as susceptible to the forces of cavitation as the snail shells are. And, and you see 
regularly major damage on the appendages, um, especially over large uses. Luckily, they can molt. And the appendage itself um, is made of this plywood-like structure, which is very resistant to um, damage and fracture, which certainly happens, but only right at the surface where they strike it. And the rest of their appendage isn't, which is where cavitation was forming on my um, model. So we were, we were like, wow, okay, what is going on there? Um, and so then we began trying to figure out what about the shape of the appendage and the materials that it's made out of, um, or perhaps the, the speed at which it was moving, or it's not kind of just moving at a constant speed, it's going up to a speed and down, and how does the acceleration involve? Like, all of a sudden, we were like, wow, what what twenty? What makes this not hurt itself? Right? Did you, did you come up with anything? <laughs> That's like a big question, and it's you know, as science goes, you have these these questions that it would be nice to be able to answer, and of course, you realize quickly that there's so many pieces in there that we don't know that you have to like chip away at the little tiny ones before you can begin to answer um, some of those other ones, and so. We um, we did a lot of things. Um, I did things like put dissect off and put actual appendages from the mantis shrimp on the model to be able to eliminate all um, to make sure it's the same material properties. It was the same shape, mm-hmm. um, and so we had it going at the same speed, same accelerations, not exactly the same rate of acce- not exactly the same jerk, which is the rate of change of acceleration. Um, and we still saw cavitation okay. before it struck. And that um, got us thinking that it was perhaps this the kinematics about the the rate at which it was going or the rate at which it was accelerating. And this is why we ended up the first study that we did um, was really looking at how um, the rate of change, the velocity, the acceleration, the rotational acceleration. We don't know how any of those things influence cavitation formation because all of the engineering literature, um, everything is done in constant velocity. Yeah. And so we didn't know anything about how it worked in these crazy conditions. So we're like, okay, like we can't answer all these other questions, but let's start with this one and see if we can at least answer that to see if um, how sensitive we needed to be able to make our model. Like if we found out that it was cavitation was very sensitive to kind of how you changed your velocity, then we would have to be much more careful with how the model was built in order to match that to be able to study these things. Um, yeah, so we studied that first, and we found out it didn't matter how you moved it. <laughs> the maximum velocity was all that really mattered. Um, so it wasn't that. So we don't know yet. How's that um, for an answer? Okay. Well, that, hey, it's a very science answer. <laughs> it is. That's how it usually works out. Well, we learned a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. We, we know slightly more about what's going on than we did before. Exactly. Yep. We know it's not this. That's usually how it works. So, so why... Why was it important to try and build a physical model of this? I, I mean, obviously it's complex. So uh, computer simulations wouldn't have given you any useful sort of data? Yeah, yeah. Very good question. Right. Because this is how a lot of these things normally are done is um, fluid dynamics simulations, computational fluid dynamics. Um, and there's a – we were. I was actually working with um, – uh, an advisor who was a computational fluid dynamics um, 
that was what he studied. In particular, he was working on cavitation. And the problems were all the models could not take into account the complexities that you see in the environmental conditions. And not knowing kind of which of the 20 different parameters that were going on, like cavitation is sensitive to so many different things, like the the dissolved gas content in the water, the salinity, the amount of um, other tiny particulates. Um, and like I said, they didn't know what the effect of rotation, there's no kind of models on, on those. So actually modeling cavitation accurately in a computational system is really difficult given just how stochastic it is. It's just kind of like when it happens is dependent on so many factors that it's, it's very difficult to do numerically. Um, and given that we didn't, there were so many pieces that weren't quite known, we figured it would be um, easier to, to start at the other end, at least to begin with, and, and get something. We're keeping as many of those factors consistent as possible and then be able to kind of whittle away and, mm -hmm. and control one at a time and see what influence it had. That was basically the approach. So what did you take away from the whole experience? What did I take away from the experience? Oh, that's a tough one. You don't have to answer. <laughs> well, no, hold on, let me think. Let me think. Um, I guess one of, one of the things that struck me most was um, how useful a model can be even when it's not a perfect replica, right? We often think of, especially if you're building um, a biomimetic model, that it kind of has to be as close as possible in order for it to be useful. But um, one of the things I was realizing was there's a ways in which it doesn't completely mirror the system can also tell you a lot. You know, if it's, if it's like it in many different ways, but it's not like it in this way, and then you see a difference in, in the output, um, or you're able to control and, and mimic just one or two aspects. And that allows you to break down this really complicated system um, and kind of isolate out things that if you make it exactly identical, it's really difficult to know um, what's causing it and like really determine the individual influences of each of the different pieces. Um, yeah. So uh, what are you working on now? Oh, now. Um, now I am building a exoskeleton for a bird. Why? <laughs> Excellent question. Um, exoskeletons are this, this – have actually been – are becoming really common in um, rehabilitative work and in human performance augmentation and, you know, working on trying to figure out how to get soldiers to be able to walk further – they, they're used to improve gait for people who have um, gait disabilities, like with cerebral palsy. Um, but we don't quite understand yet the physiology of what's gone on inside. And so a lot of them have been um, just been improving through trial and error because we don't have any kind of animal model to test things on. So I was building an exo for a bird so we could have an animal model and go inside and see exactly how things are being influenced by an exo. So I, I generally build things is kind of how I like to build things <laughs> in order to answer questions. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me.
You can learn more about Suzanne Cox and find links to information about her current work with RoboBird, as well as videos of NinjaBot in action, from our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. There, you can also find past episodes, our social media links, and learn how to support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 